we're producing food on the land the same mass as China, which we're not eating. It consumes three times the volume of water of Lake Geneva, and we're throwing it away. So as we're trying to feed the world, as we're trying to address rural poverty and all these issues, food loss sits right at the center of those challenges. This is Energy in Conversation, a look into our energy future through the eyes of people leading the way. I'm your host, Dean Somerville. Today we explore the role energy plays in getting food from the farm onto our tables, and how it could be improved to feed people better with less impact on the planet. As we've just heard, a massive amount of resources are used to produce the world's food. Most of the energy for this currently comes from fossil fuels, putting a huge strain on global efforts to limit climate change and pollution. In the meantime, one third of all food we produce never gets eaten. As we'll find out, the reasons for this are different depending on where in the world you look. In the first part, we'll focus on emerging economies, where most food spoilage happens before we even get it to market. In part two, we turn to industrialized economies, where it's retailers and consumers who are throwing food away. Let's begin by getting to grips with the scale and nature of the problem. I'm here with our very first podcast guest, Laura Sands. Uh, great to be on this. Um, I'm Laura Sands. I'm very privileged to be a, a fellow of the Energy Institute, um, but also have a strange combination of interests across energy, food and waste. And so it's brilliant to be asked to talk about food and energy, which is often one of the sort of Cinderella issues across those people looking at decarbonisation and energy. So most people don't think of the links between energy and food. How did you arrive at the idea that this is a key issue that needs to be addressed? So I'm interested in systems problems. And it felt like we've got quite a few systems, whether that be food, energy and resources in its widest sense, that really haven't actually um, been shaped to be the most efficient, certainly are very far from being decarbonised, and that there was going to be significant and seismic change in those in how those systems, those business systems and government policy systems were developing. Now, the question is, is at what point do we decide that we should be feeding the world better rather than worse, which has a huge opportunity for us to be much less destructive. So we need to feed the world without destroying the planet. But as Laura says, current systems for food and energy aren't working as well as they could. Let's find out more from Toby Peters. My name's Toby Peters. I'm the professor in cold economy at the University of Birmingham. And I'm also a senior research fellow in transformational innovation for sustainability at Heriot Watt University. So we talk a lot around food loss and waste and bring it together into one group. Um, food waste, which is what we experience primarily here in the developed world, is the food which we lose in our fridges at home. Food loss, which is the, the challenge and issue of the developing world, is the food which is lost between the farm and the market. So it never even gets to the point of consumption. To put that in context, when you aggregate the amount of food which is lost and wasted, it produces so much CO2, the production of that food. The natural fact, it's the third biggest emitter of CO2 in the world after America and China. Food loss and food waste are a huge problem for the well-being of both people and the environment. 
because it's not just the food that goes to waste, but all the resources that have gone into producing it. So where does energy come in? As Laura explains, it depends on where in the world you are. First, let's look at emerging economies, places like India and countries in sub-Saharan Africa. In these economies, 40% of food loss happens between the farm and the market before even getting to the point of consumption. In emerging economies, you end up with quite a lot of food waste in the field as such, where production and technologies are not actually maximizing their harvests. You then have a major issue around transportation. So while there's quite a lot of waste in the field in some emerging economies, it is actually in the transportation and storage where we really see quite a lot of both waste and spoilage, etc. And to address that, to ensure that those economies are more sustainable, on one level, it does require probably quite a lot more energy consumption because what we need is we need some form of refrigeration, we need cool storage, we might need some flash freezing. All of this is incredibly energy intensive. There are two key challenges for getting food onto tables before it spoils. One is keeping it cold, and the other is moving it quickly. These two things together are known as the cold chain, and it's a major intersection between food and energy systems. The cold chain, in other words, is a temperature-controlled supply chain. The cold chain is also Toby's area of expertise. The challenge we have in the developing world is that in many of these countries, the cold chain doesn't yet exist. The cold chain is a seamless network of multiple stages from taking the heat out on the farm to processing the food, packaging it, storing it, moving it through to the consumer. So as it deploys, we can either deploy using traditional diesel-based technologies or we can deploy using new technologies. So for me, the issue in the developed world is sort of one of how do we move from incumbent technologies to the most efficient and green them. In the developing world, it's this challenge that the cold chain is going to grow massively in demand, and we need to preempt that using traditional fossil fuel solutions. Let's look at one example of how this might play out. A 2018 study from the University of Michigan examined the developing cold chain in sub-Saharan Africa. If you compare the emissions involved in getting food to market using current methods, largely without cold chain, versus implementing a North American-style cold chain, so with more energy but less food loss, this could potentially increase the greenhouse gas emissions of delivered food by 10%. As with most parts of the food system, the full story is more complex. A cold chain may lead to changes in agricultural production, as well as in diets, which could in turn either increase or reduce emissions. The main point here is that it matters how we get food from the farm to your plate, or bowl, or even spork. And this might need some dramatic rethinking. At the moment, when we talk energy, we essentially mean electricity. And when we talk energy storage, which is the holy grail of renewables, we mean batteries. But yet, most of our energy consumption is actually for thermal loads. So why aren't we thinking around how do we store thermally? When you think about the, the demand, is actually simply greening our electricity the best way of doing it? Or should we be looking at more of a merit order of intervention, whereby 
we reduce demand by behavioural change. We think about the design of the building, even the site to use trees for shading, natural ventilation. We think about the opportunity to harness waste heat or waste cold and think thermally. If you're going to solve this problem, you have to change the question. The question isn't how much green electricity can I produce? The question is, what's the service I require and how can I deliver it in the most efficient way? If we rethink the question, we can focus on our end goal, making sure the food we grow actually feeds hungry people. This doesn't necessarily mean increasing greenhouse gas emissions and harming the environment. When you change the question and focus on the service needed, it might be possible to prevent more food from spoiling without using more energy. So what about the second aspect of the cold chain we flagged up earlier, moving food quickly to a market? The challenge of the cold chain is that it includes mobility, includes movement, and it includes the logistics of food. And so I can connect my warehouse to an electricity grid and I can deliver that using green electricity, assuming there's enough green electricity to provide all of the services. The challenge, though, is when I want to move my 40-ton lorry four or 500 miles and keep the food cold. So it's this challenge is the interconnectivity between the built environment and the mobile transport logistics element. And what's really important is that it's about the speed with which you can get it to market and it's also about enabling connectivity to new markets because it's not just about how do we feed the world. It's also how do we address rural poverty? How do we um, stop rural migration to the urban centres because we've actually delivered economic opportunity back to the rural communities? You cannot do any of those without market connectivity. So the cold chain, in essence, is enabling farmers to not simply sell their product on the farm gate or even in their local market. It's enabling them to connect to the big urban centres where they can get better value. So it's about value and it's about feeding. Maybe this is another case of needing to rethink the question. Is connecting food to markets just about physically getting it from point A to point B? Matching food supply with demand is vital to make sure the food is in the right place at the right time. That way, farmers get the best value for their products, and we minimize the amount of surplus food that ends up spoiling. That's really the problem is this food is fantastic, but by the time it gets to the city, its value has dropped. Weirdly, technology plays a huge part in this in terms of farmers in Ethiopia getting market prices just in time on mobile phones, being able to supply at the right time, at the right price, in the right location. And efficiency is going to be really important in both driving better food outcomes, but also um, in reducing energy. Could you give us an example of what that looks like on the ground? So what was very interesting was in Ethiopia, they, um, they, there were a lot of middlemen in the agricultural sector. So there were uh, regional wholesalers and quite a few brokers of food. And what the farmers were finding, pretty obviously, was that these brokers were taking massive margins and that the, they were constantly being told that the price for grain or the price for whatever produce was about sort of 30% less than it actually was in on the markets, on the commodity markets in Addis Ababa. 
So I think it was the UN and a couple of aid agencies decided to roll out mobile phones with a commodity alert that went to farmers. And suddenly power changed hands. So information, knowledge, the ability to make good decisions off the back of accurate, not disguised information starts to bring a a totally different level of power. Toby illustrates a couple other ways this kind of information can be used to make food supply less wasteful. What's really important is actually the, the information flow back because what it enables you to do is decide when do you plant, when do you harvest, and you might delay your harvest by a day. Where you have good farmer producer organizations then yes it is happening i mean yes yes you you do see this information flow driving choice of crops driving time of planting time of harvesting and i'm talking to a number of new entrepreneurs setting up cold chain solutions to work with small farmers who recognize uh, the the value of information rather than just technology It's not simply about having a mobile phone as the enabling technology. It's how do you use it? How do you connect with markets so that you can sell the product in a greater distance? When we rethink the question and focus on the service we require, whether that be how to store the food cold or how best to connect it to a market, it's clear that information, communication, as well as behavior and technology changes can all help make our food systems more efficient and environmentally friendly. It's also clear that there are a lot of moving parts in this system. We might not be able to tackle the food and energy challenge by simply copying the current cold chains of industrialized economies and pasting them onto emerging economies. We'll explore why in part two, where we'll have a closer look at food and energy in industrialized economies. But first, we know that food and energy can be an overwhelming topic. If you want to learn what you can do to reduce your own food waste and emissions, We've posted some helpful links on our site at energy-inst.org slash podcast. And if you're enjoying this episode, please help others find it by leaving a rating or review wherever you downloaded it, or by tweeting to at Energy Institute. Now, on to part two. Despite having reliable cold chains in place, people in countries like the UK and the US are still throwing away about a third of their food. By following the journey from the farm to the table, we can start to unpick where energy and food are not being valued, and as a result, are used inefficiently. In the UK, we've got quite a lot of inputs, whether that be chemicals, diesel, and overall management of agriculture is pretty energy hungry. And as a result, very much the missing link when you start to look at how we're going to get to net zero. Um, So we've really got to bear down on that. In the winter, we get something like 73% of our fresh vegetables comes from abroad. We are a consumer of global products. Now, that has both a cost impact, but it also has an energy impact. Whether food has been grown within a country or shipped there from abroad, by the time it makes its way to a market, a lot of resources have gone into it already. These include water, fertilizer, and land, as Toby mentioned earlier, but also potentially a lot of energy, as food follows a pretty sophisticated distribution network, involving multiple stops at processing, packaging, and sometimes storage facilities before it reaches a market. As Laura explains, there are two issues to consider here when it comes to food and energy. One is the vehicle that moves food from place to place, and the other is how the network itself is organized. 
what's interesting about transportation and food is it often comes with chilling as well. And so we've got a double whammy here because currently diesel is being chucked into the HGVs, but there's double consumption because it is also driving the chilled environment within the transportation itself. So I think that, you know, there are new technologies here. We've really got to drive this out because this is actually creating a lot of air pollution as well as carbon consumption. If you're not familiar with the term HGV, That's a heavy goods vehicle. And I think we are still very inefficient when it comes to how we transport food. So the area I used to be involved with, we had a lot of cauliflower and the cauliflower was called Thanet Brassica. And it was taken from Thanet and it was taken to Nottingham and then repackaged and then brought back to Thanet, which is Margate and Kent. And sold as local brassica. Fantastic. Hold on a second. Maybe we were actually, via Nottingham, um, we ended up with something that wasn't quite as local as it was being presented. So I do think we need to look at the efficiencies here. As this story demonstrates, many large retailers of food try to centralize their processing, packaging, and storage operations to a few locations around the country to be as cost-efficient as possible. And weirdly, even though this might be inefficient from an energy perspective, it may not be as bad as it looks if you start thinking about the alternatives. What would happen if we changed how the current centralized network was set up? Maybe the food could be sold on or near the farm where it's produced. But this would need many more consumers to travel individually, probably in cars, to pick it up. Or we could add additional packaging facilities around the country, but each of these facilities requires energy to operate. So food miles are an incomplete measure of the overall environmental impacts of a cold chain, because all the moving parts of a cold chain are intertwined and the trade-offs are complex. But surely we can do better than using diesel to both drive the trucks and keep the food cold while it basically gets moved around in circles. And in the UK, a country trying to shift its overall CO2 emissions to zero by 2050, you have to wonder how this aspect of the cold chain is still untouched by policy. I'm not trying to say that we don't know how to do cold chain. We absolutely know how to do cold chain. The UK is probably the best country for cold chain logistics. We are very good at it. We have very good supply chains, but they run on diesel. The UK, for example, is still dithering around whether or not they should remove red diesel subsidy from transport refrigeration units. So the U- in the UK, transport refrigeration units can run on subsidised diesel. So it's this disconnect between a commitment to a climate emergency and actually the policies which underpin it. The red diesel Toby mentions here is just like regular diesel with two key differences. First, it is meant for agricultural or construction vehicles only, so it's dyed red for easy detection in road vehicles. Second, it's taxed at a much lower rate than regular diesel. So, red diesel is cheap. This allows us to have access to a wide range of produce and apparently drive cauliflower around in circles, but it also means we'll struggle to reduce our food-related carbon emissions. Let's move on to the next step in the cold chain, how food is sold. In advanced economies, more than 40% of food waste occurs after it reaches the market. Laura believes that by looking at how retailers sell food to consumers, we can understand some of the reasons so much of our food ends up in the bin, along with all the resources that have gone into it up to that point. 
So when we look at waste and we look at waste in emerging economies, it's primarily through the supply chain. When we look at waste in the developed countries, we have got a significant amount of waste when it comes to consumers. And everybody always blames the consumer for, for, for food waste. Well, I don't believe actually that we should be expecting the consumers to do all the heavy lifting on this. So we've got to look at how food is sold. Right? And Often it's sold with fantastic bargains, you know, buy one, get eight free. These are often perishable goods, which actually end up going off in your fridge rather than in the retailer's uh, chiller. So I think we've got to look at business models. And I wonder how many people actually decide in the morning that they're going to go out and buy asparagus or whether it's when they're walking around the shop that they see you know, asparagus, pineapple, all out of season and say, that's what I want. So I'm not sure that there will be riots when we end up, let's say, having a more seasonal set of, of, of choices. But we also need to be really clear that, you know, consumers will want some out of season products. But to be frank, they will cost more. And I think we've just got to accept that. And we will start bringing on quite a lot of really interesting other fruit and veg that, that we have domestically. So how much impact can seasonality have on the emissions for a particular food? One study found that for UK consumers in winter, lettuce grown in the UK, so grown indoors with mainly fossil fuel-based heating and lighting, has a higher greenhouse gas footprint than field-grown lettuce imported from Spain. The energy used for growing tips the balance, despite the much shorter transport distances for UK lettuce. Laura's examples illustrate some big issues that will not change overnight. A distribution system driven and cooled by diesel, as well as a shopping experience where consumers are sometimes pushed to make choices that lead to more waste of both food and energy. This all must be economic because the food industry is still turning a profit. To be fair, and to pick up Toby's point, our current food systems are amazing when you stop to think about them. The market around the corner from my apartment is stocked with fruit and vegetables delivered ripe and usually in great condition from all around the globe. It's late autumn here, so there's not that much local stuff, but we've got some British spring onions, celeriac, lots of cabbage, some beetroots, carrots, some beans and snap peas. Oh, nope, actually the beans are from Kenya. English pears next to Costa Rican pineapples. Bananas from Cameroon. Here's our ready-to-eat avocados from Chile. Some bulk coffees from... Sumatra. We are living in a time where food choice in many parts of the world is better than ever. But this relies heavily on relatively cheap transportation and cooling, which are driven, sorry about the pun, largely by oil and gas. To reach our climate targets, we need to figure out how to factor in the negative environmental impacts of the energy we use to preserve and move food without driving up prices and putting even more pressure on people already struggling to put food on the table. The food sector really does have big challenges when it comes to decarbonisation, and we really got to support unlocking that, because otherwise um, we're going to have a very, very big part of our economy which will not be touched by the current decarbonisation agenda. Government really has to start... Um, driving through a carbon tax of, of some sort. But that also needs to, in many ways, address um, agricultural 
um, diesel consumption. We need to support the sector to um, look at alternative fuels to ensure that we're driving decarbonisation through that. Maybe there are incentives for decarbonised products and services, and that would, of course, include food. Um, then we would start to really drive um, a new agenda, which actually, in my view, would probably mean that we would end up with um, a more efficient food system. As Laura says, a carbon tax is one way to factor environmental costs into business decisions, pushing the food industry in emerging and industrialized economies to adapt their business models and supply chains. It would essentially mean that what makes financial sense is also what makes environmental sense. To fully address food emissions, a carbon tax needs to go beyond agricultural diesel consumption and address all elements of the food system, such as land use and production techniques, accounting for trade-offs, and watching out for potential unintended consequences. This is quite a challenge for policymakers, but worthwhile as the stakes are high. In the UK, the food system is responsible for almost 20% of overall greenhouse gas emissions. The intersection of food and energy in both emerging and developed economies is a challenge that involves farmers, consumers, and everyone in between. But how do you join up all these dots? How much is the food industry talking with the energy industry? Are the food systems in emerging economies coordinated with advanced economies? Probably not as much as they should be. Both Laura and Toby would like to see emerging and industrialized economies working together to tackle challenges around food and energy. There are two things we need to do with absolute uh, commitment. One is we have to stop dumping technology into the developing world. And that's either technology which is low efficiency or technology which is at the end of life in our country, and then we try and dump it into Africa. Those have to stop. But I think it's actually about working together to solve these problems in a joined-up way. And what we have to remember, of course, is that this isn't around the developing and the developed world. Our food is coming from these farmers. It's, it's not like they're only feeding their own market. So we are going into the same larder but we're going to be going in there with 10 billion people and 3 billion of them will be new middle class. What worries me, of course, is that we're exporting our ideas, which actually need to be reformed as well. And so in many ways, that there are some really interesting things that we could be learning um, from emerging economies about efficiencies. And there are things that, that we should be um, ensuring that they can adopt from, from our models. But please, let's not say that any of our models is perfect and that we've all got something to learn from each other. The point about the, in some ways, interrelationship between food and energy, it has to be addressed together. How we do that is our choice. And our choice has to be a sustainable, environmentally friendly and non-destructive choice. A really powerful call to action from Laura there. Let's wrap up with a little input from Toby on the types of things he would like to see to solve these really complicated problems of reducing energy waste, reducing food waste, and feeding the world. I would like to see significant investment alongside the technology development, deployment, knowledge transfer to India and Africa, um, also the skills development to maintain and develop that technology. I mean, in, in the UK, I think the refrigeration industry is 70% of it is, is, is people over 40. I think 
the amount of, of women in this industry is less than 5%. We need to change those, those, those numbers. We need to see an industry which is vibrant, which is attracting young people, diversity, which is attracting women into this industry. A refrigerator isn't perhaps the most exciting topic of conversation. The issue of how do we feed the world, the issue of, of, of how do we protect, support, help small-scale farmers, how do we help women farmers in Africa, how do we do this without destroying the environment, are actually really interesting questions to young people today. So again, I think changing the question actually shows why this is such an important topic. A big thank you to Laura Sands and Toby Peters for talking us through this important, complex, and fascinating challenge to feed the world without harming the planet. This idea of rethinking our biggest questions and focusing on the end result has come up again and again in our interviews. It's especially relevant in our upcoming episodes on moving to low-carbon heat and on the relationship between emissions and access to energy. We hope this episode leaves you with some answers but lots of questions. Let us know what else you want to hear about. You can get in touch with us by tweeting to at Energy Institute. Energy in Conversation is brought to you by the Energy Institute. You can find us wherever you download podcasts or visit energy-inst.org slash podcast for episodes and bonus material. If you like what you've heard, please help other listeners find us by leaving a rating or review wherever you downloaded this episode. This episode was produced by Sarah George and Essen Saren. Our theme music is by Jack Keeney. I'm your host, Dean Somerville. A special thanks for this first episode to everyone who's shown such keen interest for all of your enthusiasm and useful feedback. Great. Last question. If you could have an energy superpower, what would it be? <laughs> I tell you, I'm quite excited, although I'm sure it's totally not feasible. Um, I'm quite excited by solar lasers. Mm. Right. Wow. Solar lasers. <laughs> okay. It's really good. Solar, Solar lasers. lasers. That's the title of the episode now. <laughs> Just not related Probably to food not at that. all. Can I <laughs>